Thanks, everyone. Um, next time, welcoming Nico van der Kolf to the stage. He's going to be collectively considering desirable actuarial behavior in light of professionalism requirements using two video case studies. Nico is head of um, actuarial and group reporting for Old Mutual Emerging Markets and also the current chair of ASA Professional Matters Board. Thanks, Nico. It's very nice, actually, to be uh, with a completely different crowd to whom I'm normally addressing. This started as a presentation to the life seminar and then somehow became one to the retirement matters seminar and now is one for this one. So it seems to be a traveling one for those who are potentially therefore hearing it for the third time or if they doubled up on the life seminar for the fourth time seeing that that was Cape Town and Joburg. Um, I was tempted to start off saying apologies at the same time considering how much audience participation there is in this talk. Just make sure you sit with different people and there should still be value in it. So. Um, uh, this is all about uh, professionalism and wearing a bit of the how do we maximize our professional behavior. It's almost a bit of a change in pace compared to some of the, um, the copulas from before. Uh, clearly as a life actuary when I hear copula it still starts, sounds like the start of a word rather than a full word. So um, it's, it's very nice to just think we're now going to head towards something a lot closer to ethics. So in terms of See if I can get the thing moving. Okay, there we go. Um, the introduction is not going to be very long. Most of the session is going to be spent on the videos and discussion amongst yourselves, and then there'll be a bit of follow-up at the end. So in terms of the introduction, clearly those who have seen this before, you might recognize that guy. And it's interesting how much of the debate around that was around was it an accident, was it homicide, or was it a murder? Um, and um, maybe a quick show of hands, who knows exactly what the difference between those are? Oh, good. Um, it's, it's interesting that in, in law the big difference between those is um, all to do with um, how much um, of guilt is involved, how much of um, different kinds of you should be held liable. So the first example is if you deliberately do something, and there's a couple of variations of what is considered deliberate. Um, if I deliberately point a gun at someone and shoot them, that's clearly the obvious one. But there's also the example of if I'm trying to shoot someone who's standing behind someone and I have to shoot through someone to kill the second one, I didn't have the intent to kill the first person, but it was kind of inevitable that I had to do it too. So that's still intent. And the version that was um, spoken a lot about in the Oscar case was um, the third kind of intent which says, um, I'm doing something which it is very obvious um, can and, and would lead to someone's death and I just reconciled myself to that thought and therefore didn't take the obvious precautions to doing it, which is the example of I know someone standing behind the door and I put a couple of bullets through the door. Um, the typical one, if I tried to avoid killing someone, would have been to shoot for the corners of the door, as an example, as opposed to um, person height. So that was the, the first example there. Culpable homicide is a negligence crime, which says I wasn't even reasonably foreseeing that someone could get killed by what I was doing, um, but because a reasonable man could have foreseen that there was some risk, they would have taken some precautions. 
um, you know, first provide a warning that I'm going to shoot through the door now, etc. So some of the stuff is, um, it's now down to negligence. Then you hit into the culpable homicide. So initially you can hear that the whole debate was about is it culpable homicide or is it murder? And the accident one is there wasn't negligence, there wasn't intent. So now you know, like, um, bad stuff happens. And then it's accident. Now, why are we starting with this discussion when we talk about professionalism and ethics? And the answer is because this actually made me and a couple of others think quite a lot about professionalism and professional ethics because there's two ways that people typically um, start behaving unprofessionally. The one is that there's some temptation and the temptation leads people to somehow start acquiring the intent to do what's wrong. There's enough of a reward and so you go down that slippery slope of Maybe it's okay, maybe I can rationalize it away and you do the wrong thing. That's the murder version of unprofessional behavior. But there's also the negligence version of unprofessional behavior. I kind of know that I should have done a better job, but you know, I was too busy and I didn't take all the precautions I should have taken to avoid the inappropriate outcome from happening. And um, the two case studies we're gonna be doing today, one is, um, is from a, a more, um, sort of temptation sort of case study and the other one is more of a negligence sort of case study thinking about the future a bit more and thinking about the precautions that could and should have been taken. So to get into the heart of it, we, um, in light of the efficiency of copying across um, seminars, clearly we're also copying across in <laughs> international bodies here. So we took a couple of videos with permission from the IFOA um, from their banks, so those that are members of the of the IFOA as well, may have seen some of these case studies on their website. Um, thereafter, once we've seen the videos, we will turn to one another in groups of somewhere between three and five is okay, inclusive clearly, otherwise I haven't given you much wriggle room. Um, and there will be some questions at the end of each of the, of the videos. We'll, we'll discuss those in the smaller groups and then at the end, there'll be a, a roving mic, and, and, and at that point, we're looking for one of two things. Either a burning question that the group kind of felt needed to be asked in the big forum, or, and this is something that turned out to be quite valuable in some of the other sessions, some observation that came out of that discussion that just felt like it was like a, a good observation to also share with a bigger forum to help others think about their professionalism in that way. So that's sort of the, 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 the format. In terms of answers, the good news is these um, things have no unique and correct answers. There are better answers and worse answers maybe, but even that is sometimes open to debate. So it was deliberately left as nice open-ended discussions to elicit some, some good discussion about what is ethical and what is best. So that gets us right into the first case study. Now for some reason the mouse is not working, so I'll have to do it the painful way. Here we go. In the world of the actuary, changing jobs can be a complicated process. A nightmare. Hi, I'm Clive Spongi, and you may remember me from other actuarial training videos, such as Being Prudent, the Safety in Numbers, Assumption 2, The Return of the Assumption, and the award-winning I is not a number, yet I is one. Hi. Hi. I'm Jolian Joyce. I know what you're thinking. Hey Clive and Jolian, 
What are some of the main issues when moving from one actuarial job to another? Hmm. Well, one of the main issues to consider is when, how, and even if to use the knowledge and information gained from your present company and apply it to your new role in a different organization. Well, you're in the right place. That's what this video is all about. So, let's get that show on the road. Nice. That's Eric. Eric's an actuary with very detailed knowledge in quite a specific... Eric's telling Sarah that he thinks the general knowledge that he has, uh, what he's gained from doing his actuarial exams, is okay to use in his new job. Even though he's designed some products with his professional knowledge for Bloom Inc. Hmm. Sarah agrees. Then Eric tells Sarah about some training notes he has in writing. The notes originally were provided by Bloomink, but Eric has added to them over the years, often in his own time, and has developed his own training methods. He's thinking of using the notes to put together a training program for GT insurance. This time, Sarah shares her concerns. But Jolian, Eric did a lot of this work in his own time. Hmm. I'm not sure that really matters though, Clive. And neither is Sarah. Well then, heck, Jolian. What exactly can Eric take to his new role? Hmm. There's a lot to consider, Clive. There sure is. Think about the actuary's code. Ah. Isn't there a section in integrity? And what about personal circumstances? If Eric leaves Bloom Inc. on bad terms, he might be more likely to want to do them harm in the marketplace. Yes, but if he leaves on really good terms and still knows a lot of people who work there, he might make professional decisions that would favor Bloom Inc. But he has a duty now to GT Insurance. <laughs> exactly. So what exactly is he supposed to do? What are the boundaries? When it comes to professional knowledge, what exactly are the boundaries of what's acceptable and what isn't? All great questions, Clive. But I'm not the person to ask. Oh, I'm intrigued, Jolien. Who should we ask? Ask them. Okay. So, what should he do? Where do the boundaries lie? And when it comes to professional knowledge... You don't need to repeat the question, Clive. What? don't need to repeat the question. Oh, right. Okay. Smile. Nice. Getting a little more specific, Eric tells Sarah that Blooming did extensive research into brokers. From that research, Eric knows which brokers are best to deal with. He also knows which brokers to avoid. Specifically, one highly regarded broker for which Blooming uncovered a critical weakness. As far as Sarah's concerned, Eric now has a duty to GT Insurance. But she also thinks it's unrealistic for anyone to expect Eric to unknow what he knows. So she thinks it's okay for him to use his broker knowledge in his new job. But it's important to remember, Clive, 
that Blooming regard their research as a critical differentiator when it comes to their competition? Yup, Jolian, it's a tricky one. So, what do you think? Okay, so it's three months on and Eric is doing well in his new job at his new company. But Eric's manager has just asked him to provide some initial thoughts on a brand new service that GT Insurance is thinking of offering. A service that would be the first of its kind in the marketplace. The only trouble is that in the last few months of Eric's time at Blooming, he discovered that they too were planning on launching the exact same service within the next six months. So what should Eric do? Should he tell GT Insurance about Blooming's plans? That's the big question, Clive. It sure is. Nothing's ever straightforward in these actuarial videos, is it, Jolene? No, it isn't, Clive. Hey, Clive. What you got there? Well, Jolian, it's actually a copy of Eric's employment contract from Bloom Inc. How'd you get hold of that? Well, that's not important right now. What is important is that it says this. You may not disclose or make available to others any confidential information or intellectual property relating to current prospective business developed, used or possessed by Bloom Inc. These restrictions apply even after leaving the employment of Bloom Inc. Interesting stuff, Clive. Mm. Do you know what's in your employment contract? Food for thought, Jolian. Well, that's it till next time. So it's goodbye from me, Clive Spongi. And it's goodbye from me, Jolian Joyce. Goodbye. There's the first set of questions, so find yourself a couple of colleagues close by and get going. I'll uh, make a noise when we're going to get going again with questions in the big group. Are people mostly done? It's wonderful hearing the noise levels go up when the actors start talking. Um, now we've got a couple of roaming mics, so just show of hands if you think there's a useful question that might be worth he everyone hearing, or if your little group had some useful points that you think's worth sharing for everyone. We're not going to force people to talk, but um, I'm, I'm also hoping it won't be necessary to start going, um, come on, where, where's, the, where's the questions and the comments now? So open, just raise, raise the hands if you've got something that then the mics will come to you. There we go. Thanks for being first. Yeah, Nico, I uh, just want to make you know, I'm doing this under protest just to get the discussion started. I think what's interesting is, is the boundary from just talking among the team is often gray and it's different for different people the way they perceive life. I think some of the boundaries are clear cut. If you know something's gonna be wrong, you're gonna be prosecuted. That's the easy stuff we should all get. I think the difficult stuff is all the gray areas and where you think the boundary is, and if you just converse with a, with a colleague, they might get a different boundary. So maybe the, the, the two observations from our group is that one, 
if you're uncertain where the boundary is, you know, I said to Carl, you know, the previous employer, I think I can disclose that, uh, <laughs> they said you fly alone, you die alone. And I think we should probably do that more often just to consult with someone, you know, even if it's a, a teammate, someone more junior, someone more senior, non-actually, doesn't matter, just to get a different view on something. And the other test that we think is quite good is to often test what is in the public domain. So as soon as you get into any information, whether you can disclose or not, if you can find it with Google somewhere, then chances are it's in the public domain and then you can breathe easier. So there's just two observations. Thanks. It sounds like you've been stealing some of my conclusions. Stop it. Um, <laughs> very nice. Um, so now that the ball's rolling, let's not be um, waiting for one another. Other comments? Show of hands. Hi there. So the first comment that we had, it's actually similar to what's just been said relating to that broker investigation. If it was something that was in the public domain, or I think more specifically, if it's something that the individual could recreate at his new firm, that sort of answers one of the questions, can he take it with or not? And then the other point was, the reason for the investigation in the first place. I mean, if, if there's market knowledge and people are investigating the firm anyway, then in theory it's not really confidential to begin with. And the second point that we came up with was everyone is always going to gain knowledge with their experience and everyone moves in the industry. So there is a, a fine line between gaining that knowledge and actually taking confidential sort of sp specific product pricing and, for example, that new service that they were going to launch, whether or not you're actually explicit with that when you actually move. Thanks. Anyone else? Um, just to Andre's point about whether it's in the public domain, does that, he's, I think he said it makes you can sleep a bit easier or it makes you feel better. I agree, but we also in our discussion raised the question of what about an information that's or, or for example, what if you put a lot of effort and time and you invest time and money in performing research based on information that's in the public domain and you produce some sort of a document or a, you know, an, an output that's only there because of your time and effort, regardless of whether the input information is in the public domain. Would, you, would it be okay then to take that and hand that to the new employer? And I don't think it would be if your current employer paid for the time and effort and essentially is the owner of that output, even if it's based on publicly available information. And I've, I've seen that. So it's like the fact that it's publicly available information per se isn't, I think, the only, it can't be the only measure. Yeah, I think there's a, a long, dark, deep um, rabbit hole that sits behind that question if you're going to Typically, what's in the employment contracts around confidential information tends to rely a little bit on intellectual property law for its, um, for its foundation. And um, if you are dealing with something that was summarizing what was in the public domain, the, that typically is something that is generally not copyrightable or protectable. So it is quite an interesting one because your new employer could pay you to do it again, but because you've done it before, it would happen really quickly. So I think it's, it's probably one of those that the more public domain it is, the safer you still are. But be careful because public domain um, can still get interpretation of what's in the public domain thrown in and then it starts becoming potentially um, something to be protected again. Another hand there.
maybe just adding then on, on to that, uh, in the question around what, which boundaries exist, um, even in the case where you don't necessarily are contravening a contractual boundary, or it's, it's not even possible to prove that you've actually done something. So for example, you take notes or you produce notes at a previous employer and at your new employer you start from scratch. So even personally you feel comfortable that you haven't breached anything. If someone was to look at it from the outside and say, well, you were in charge of training at the previous employer and now you're in charge of training at the new employer and you've also produced a manual, you kind of have to think, what, what's the perceived, um, well, what's, what's the perception going to be around that? Each of us have only one brand and we seem to be working at it for most of our careers. It would be really silly to destroy it um, in the short term. I've just experienced this one on the receiving end of this and it was uh, what I now consider best advice where I recruited someone and they said to me, listen, I've worked with X, Y and Z before and um, I want to, as part of the interview process, make it clear where my boundaries lie. Um, and I thought that was quite impressive. So, another interesting idea. I think we're going to go to the second one now. Um, so, please keep the energy. I can see we're starting to get going now on the second one. Let's find it easier. This one's a little bit trickier because um, the cost for this thing is slightly tougher to know who they are and what their roles are. So, there's a bit of a, a preparation piece. They're supposedly all actuaries. Um, the first one, um, which most of us would probably either be or have been in our careers is the poor actor who does most of the work. That's Stefan. Georgina is the one who reviews that work and tends to take accountability for it. Viraj is chief actuary in this UK film, although the way he behaves, I'd go, it's an interesting one. I'm not sure that he's in exactly the mold of the chief actuaries I've been exposed to. Um, he's quite a business-oriented line one, almost chief actuary view at times. Mel is a project leader. Um, supposedly um, uh, just doing it because of actuarial know-how and Jacqueline is a board member who's supposed to understand this stuff and take accountability in front of the board. So um, let's get going and let's hope we don't have the same problem as with the first couple of videos. Okay Georgina, here's the work for the new Covermax product you asked for. Thank you Stefan. I appreciate all the hard work. No problem. It wasn't completely straightforward, but we got there in the end. You're an actuary now, Stefan. Nothing's ever straightforward. Agreed. The main problem was that so much has been affected by the recently changed regulatory requirements, mm. most of which I've never seen before. Requirements all seem rather unclear. So I broke everything down and based all my work on several different interpretations. Okay. Well, I'm going to go read through all this with a cup of tea. <laughs> A big cup of tea. <laughs> Enjoy. I've got to go sort my stuff out for when I head to Marrakesh next week. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Beautiful place, Morocco. Loved it. Yeah. I need the break, to be honest. Anyway, I'll leave you to it. Oh, I've also notated in there the differences in predicted profit margins. It depends on which interpretation you choose, really. That one basis could be very profitable, the other only marginally. And in the worst case scenario, it will require capital support from headquarters with huge losses as a result. Well, if you've written it all down, then I'm happy. Now, I must go and read through this lot whilst I can still feel my arms. <laughs> See ya. Sarah said you needed me. Yeah. 
it's about this report. Now, I've had a read through it, well, most of it, and although I appreciate all your hard work, it all seems rather... Inconclusive? Long. Oh, okay. What you've done is very good, Stefan. Probably a little too good, in fact. The problem is, the work you've done is so detailed, it's actually obscuring the information we need. I'll tell you what, why don't we, well, you, split the document up into a main report and a separate appendix? Okay. Yeah? Okay, so we put all the detailed work and findings in the appendix and keep the main report for the juicy stuff, the central estimate. Sure, we can mention there are other possibilities, but we don't need to make such a big deal out of them. Look, I know you're about to go off on holiday, but I really think it's not going to take too long for you to turn around. You are the best person to sort this. We're so close. Sure thing, boss. Afternoon, Viraj. Good to see you, Georgina. Here's the report we've been working on. We think we're in a pretty strong position to go to the board. Good. There was quite a bit of work involved, but I believe we've covered all bases. Oh dear. Oh dear what, Viraj? Well, whilst I can see this is all very good work and I can really see the hours that you've put into it, but I don't think this will be suitable when it comes to briefing the board. Oh, really? Well, I thought... It's too long, Georgina. We don't want to overload people with a mass of complicated jargon, loads of caveats, and a whole range of different outcomes. What I want you to do is to reduce the whole thing down to three pages. Write it in plain English, and let's give them a clear and concise message. At the end of the day, we don't want a board. Board. <laughs> <laughs> okay, shouldn't be a problem. Thanks, Faraj. One more thing. Please give the whole thing a much more positive feel. Some of the assumptions seem rather cautious, and we can't um, justify excessive pessimism in our world. Uh, please rework some of the numbers to a more realistic basics. Okay. And once you and your team have done that, please bring it back to me. Sure thing. Remember, Georgina, less is more. Less is more. Just the person I wanted to see. Well, here I am, but i uh, better make it quick. I've got loads of things to sort out before I head to New York for this board meeting. Well, you will need this then. It's the report that we've written up on Covermax for you to take to the board. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, that was on my list of things to chase up this afternoon. Um, I'll read it on the plane. Uh, I'm sure it's got all the information I need. It's just there are so many things I need to do. I don't even think I'm going to have time to have lunch with the team later. Okay, not a problem. If you've got any problems, give me a call. Okay. Have a safe flight. Hi, Viraj, it's Mel. Oh, I literally landed 20 minutes ago. 
No, I'm, I'm presenting in 40 minutes. Viraj, I, I can't hear you very well. Are you outside? Oh, okay, we, we better make this quick then. Um, look, uh, Viraj, uh, about this Covermax report, uh, there's a bit of a problem. No, I'm, I'm not saying there's a problem with the work. It's just, I don't have the Covermax report with me. I, I'm, I must have left it on my desk in the rush, Viraj. Um, excuse me, do you mind turning the radio down? Oh. What? No, I, I didn't have time to read it through before I left. F female? What female? Oh, email. Uh, no, we, we really don't have time for that. I mean, I'm minutes away and the internet isn't working on my phone. I mean, it, it wasn't a very long report, Viraj, so can you just give me the details? Yep, yeah, I've got a pen and paper in my hand now. Okay. Short to medium term forecasts, one million. Uh, pounds or dollars? What? <laughs> Excuse me, do you mind turning the radio down? Um, okay. 500 million worldwide premium over the next three years. Uh, profits? Okay. Claims benchmarked. Staffing needed in what areas? Say again, Viraj. Okay, um, and loss ratios are good. The capital requirements? Oh, oh, that's great news. Y you did what? Uh, Viraj? Viraj? Everyone, this is Mel. Mel's come over from London today to talk us through the progress made on a new product she's currently working on. Go ahead, Mel. Thanks, Jacqueline. Hi, all. Yeah, I'm here to talk about the positive stuff from the work we've been doing on a, uh, a new product, Covermax. I mean, the product itself actually requires very little capital to run, um, and we're already seeing profits across the board, uh, some of which are actually quite significant. Excellent. Indeed. Obviously. I won't bore you with in-depth data and stats, but it is safe to say that everyone back in London is really excited about this. I bet. We do require finance for the big marketing push we plan to do in the UK before we launch globally, but um, as I've said, this really is going from strength to strength and our expectations are nothing but positive. Well, this seems like a no-brainer to me. I believe that we should support the great work going on Covermax. I propose that we allocate the required capital toward the project in order to keep the profit margins heading the way they currently are. All those in favor? Excellent. Well, that's that then. Right, uh, next item. Allow me to read you a letter which we received from the regulator not two days ago. From our review of your annual regulatory returns and subsequent discussion, we are writing to confirm that our view is that you have materially understated 
the necessary capital requirements relating to the CoverMax product. And that as a result, you are in breach of your regulatory capital requirements. We require you to inform us within 28 days that you have remedied the situation. I am absolutely seething. This is not what was presented to me and the board. We will find out who is responsible for this and there will be severe repercussions. Mark my words. isn't a strong enough word to describe how I'm feeling right now. The board has to take responsibility for this. They are always saying they never have time to read in-depth and overly complicated documents. So as usual, we package these into smaller and more concise reports for them to look over. They've never had a problem with this sort of process before. I'm really not worried. I'm more than happy that I did my job. Uh, we put together a really good report that set out all of the options, the pros and cons, and the assumptions. I wrote that in the full report. Brilliant. I knew this would happen. I said from the outset that I didn't exactly know how to interpret the rules and that different interpretations gave different answers. No one listened to me and I was told to just get on with it. This was actually the very opening to my report, but I was told to remove it as it was too in your face, so I took it out. As a result of other people's failures, my reputation in the company is completely destroyed. Sending me all the way to America with incorrect information. As I say, embarrassing. If they knew this was a risk all along, they had a responsibility to make it clear. They wanted more concise information. If they don't understand a critical point, well, that's the risk they take for not making the effort. A conservative interpretation of required regulatory capital may result in an adverse strain to our balance sheet and invalidate our assumptions regarding the contract fulfilling our return or capital requirements. What was the point? I was never entirely happy with the summary Virage insisted we write. I mean, come on. You can't properly communicate the risks of a complex situation if people aren't really willing to read more than a few pages. If the people above me decide to rewrite my report to make it more acceptable and to change the numbers while I'm away, then that's up to them. I can't control how people use my work. Why do we pay actuaries all this money? So we can get going with discussions again. Okay, maybe we need to start finishing off if people don't want to have a delayed lunch, which clearly is not... Uh, a good idea. I would not want to stand between people and lunch. So let's start with um, hands going up to make it quick and easy. The longer it takes for hands to go up, clearly the longer we're going to take to get to lunch. Any views? Any, any comments worth making on this one? Every time I see this one again, it feels more um, real to me. <laughs> There we go. Gary. Okay, I'll get the ball rolling. I mean, I, I firmly felt that if anyone was to blame, it was probably mostly um, the Mel, the one who presented it to the board, because I think she did an absolutely shocking job. 
And I don't blame the board so much because if the board gets given information which is positive, they tend to believe what they get given. You know, maybe they should have been suspicious, but you, you don't normally... But yeah, normally you would have had a written report that would have been in the board pack for the board to have read beforehand. Um, and yes, you need to keep it short and concise, but Mel, for me, was the most guilty there. <laughs> I suppose it's um, a, a very good chief actuary. I remember saying to me, if it sounds too good to be true, you know, don't accept lip answers. So I suppose that's the, the only piece that I couldn't find anyone that I did not hold to blame <laughs> when I saw this video the first time. But yes, Mel was a real shocker to do notes on a napkin off the plane. Um, anyone else? I've got the mic. So the, the question is, is the board not to blame as well? I mean, if they believe everything, what's the point of having a board? Up front here, there's another hand. Hi. Now we discussed something similar in that the whole top-down structure is a bit, there's a lot of uh, loose ends in it. As the board didn't ask the correct questions to get comfort, Mal didn't ask the correct questions to get, get comfort, and similarly the chief actually, he seems very biased in what he did and also didn't get proper comfort on what was done. Sounds like the next hand we need needs to criticize one of the first two then. <laughs> At the back there. Hi everyone. Um, for us it came down to communication throughout the chain. So the first actually doing the work actually had to ask the question, who is my eventual audience going to be? And with the detail report, give his own summary. And then obviously the other comments that as you go up in the chain, you actually, everyone had to communicate better. I like that comment. Um, I, I said to, to one of the other conferences, there's a very nice summary of um, if you get stuck um, in terms of a checklist on what to remember with regards to communication, um, it's worth going to read SAP 901 which is, was, was the old um, uh, International Actuarial Association's ISAP one, which had a nice piece in it on communication to just help you to do it properly. But the reality is, I suppose, um, I'd be tempted to say, let's raise hands who's never communicated badly on the job. And typically, as soon as the pressure's up and we want to go on holiday or we want to miss a flight, uh, not miss a flight, etc. Communication starts going pear-shaped quite quickly. Any other comments? Here's another one. I think the, the one thing that we reflected on, Nico, that probably wasn't mentioned yet, is that often, maybe rightly or wrongly, so actuaries are generally branded as pessimists. And um, you know, the one thing that stood out in this loss of translation is to drop the bad and keep the good. And I think you know, the challenge all the way through the chain is for everyone to make sure that as you try and summarize, which is a fair point, to keep the key messages and not let the left brain dominate and show how you've derived 15 lines of code to get to the answer. Maybe show the key items. And where you get challenged on taking out the bad is make sure that in your own personal boundaries, you think that you've, 
you've at least balanced the commentary backwards, not only focusing on the bad, but also not just focusing on the good. So I think the key message for us is I think we often see this in, in, in practice. We get asked to reduce, and as soon as something has to go, probably the bad stuff goes first. I think we have to ask ourselves, is it bad, or am I giving the balanced view to make sure I can paint the downside in a balanced way? Lovely summary. Amen. Um, maybe I'm going to head to the conclusion quickly. Um, I was uh, chatting to someone who understands ethics much better than I do. And um, we chatted about this thing about the temptation that eventually leads us sometimes to do the wrong thing. Maybe when you're changing jobs, you abuse what you know or whatever. Um, maybe it's some other example that comes at you. Or maybe it's the second version of you're just so busy and somehow you don't quite think what you're doing. I remember I was chatting to one of the, the students who was involved in the exam issue that most of you may have heard about where 20-odd students had to go through a bit of a disciplinary process. And I was chatting to him about how on earth did you, you know, like, how did this happen? And he said, it's amazing. He was not even thinking about it. And the moment someone asked the question, did you behave properly or not? He immediately realized he behaved completely improperly. But in the situation, he wasn't even thinking, he was just doing. And it's interesting how many times that's how the, 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 the more negligent approach gets into your life. You get so busy and, and, and you stop thinking about what you're doing. And so he said, um, from an, an ethics point of view, there's typically two quite easy answers. When you're faced with temptation, and we had someone making this point earlier today, the best thing you can do is to shine the spotlight on it. That's why the picture of the, the lights on the stage is there. That is, go ask someone else for their opinion of what it is that you're doing. Um, getting others to talk about it, if it's not a secret what the temptation is and what the positives are and what the negatives are, you know, we, we always said, would you have minded reading about this in the front page of the newspaper? That's the spotlight test. And it's still the best way of protecting yourself against falling for the temptation thing because once the temptation comes we're good at rationalizing it away and over time you move on that slippery slope and eventually um, your judgment might not be as good as it started with and shining the spotlight on it avoids you being on the slippery slope uh, with regards to the negligence he said the the best message is the is the message of hedges and um, just like when you have a garden and you want to keep people or animals or other stuff out of it, you built little hedges to keep people on the path. Um, building hedges is something you do long before the people or the animals or the whatever wants to get into your garden. You build them when there's no reason to have them. But once you've built the hedges, they protect um, afterwards. And that's kind of the message with regards to negligence. It's all about the work habits, the professional habits that you put in place when you aren't in that pressured, stressed, very busy, whatever circumstances that might have led to, to the, the, the risk of negligence. And so uh, thinking about hedges, um, I think I want to um, finish with a couple of those sort of questions. Um, the first one is, so um, when you have a session like this, do you think about how many hours of CPD you should really be claiming? Um, or do you just log the number of hours? When last did you say no to a piece of work because you knew for sure that you did not have the expertise to do it? When last did you go ask someone else
for advice or guidance because you weren't sure what the right thing to do was. When last did you pause, stop, think about what it was that you really needed to develop as an, as an actuarial person, what your next logical developments were where you were not up to the standard you wanted to be, and then go and create the plans to actually implement to make sure that you fix that. When last did you take a piece of work that you've done that had no reason for you to ask someone to review it, but you realized that you'd get useful criticism out of that that could benefit you going forwards? When last did you sit with someone who was a lot more mature and someone who was a lot less mature than you are in terms of your professional journey to make sure that you learn from others, but that you also hand it on to others who need to learn from what you've already experienced? Um, yeah, I, I think the, the message from any of those things is about are you booking the time, are you booking the hedges now? And um, unfortunately my thunder's already been semi-stolen with you only have one reputation as an actuary. Um, you, get, you only get to do this career from start to finish once. So let's avoid the the temptations and the, the getting into the garden by doing the right stuff and shining the spotlight on the edges now. Because I'm pretty sure that that uh, once it's too late, if we go back to the, the picture of Oscar we started with, then unfortunately regret is a pretty useless thing. Thanks. <laughs>